guys. I'm going to invite you again to take your Bibles back to the book of Acts in chapter 15. Sorry, I forgot to send the classes out so they can leave. Follow Jess and Stanley. Acts 15, and we're going to read again from verse 1 to verse 18. Actually, no, like last week, we'll back up to verse 24 of chapter 14 just to catch the context and the flow of the text. The Word of God says that then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, sorry, Sorry, read it again from verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of, God, of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting the God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. What is our text? 15 to 1 to 18, talking about what's the the problem that our text is addressing? 
It's whether or not Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. It's whether or not Gentiles must become ethnic Jews for salvation. And as you can imagine, this caused no small debate in the early church at Syrian Antioch. And so, in Acts 15, 1-5, that debate was taken to Jerusalem to be considered by the council of the elders and the apostles in the church. In Acts 15 and verse 6, the Bible tells us that the council was gathered to hear the matter with much debate. And in Acts 15, verses 7 to 11, Peter argues that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised or keep the law because God himself is working to include the Gentiles. And what's striking about this whole passage as you work your way through it is the repeated assertion that it's God who's doing the work among the Gentiles. Two or three times in the passage, Paul and Barnabas report on the work that God has done among them and with them. In verse 7, Peter says it's God who chose him to speak the gospel to the Gentiles. In verse 8, it's God who knows the hearts of all men, and it's God who bore witness to the Gentile conversions by giving them His Holy Spirit. It's God who makes no distinction in verse 9 between Jew and Gentile. It's God who cleansed and circumcised their hearts by faith. And in verse 11, he wraps it up, we're all saved by the grace of Jesus who is God. And Peter concludes by admonishing the the council not to put God to the test by placing the unbearable yoke of law-keeping and circumcision on the Gentiles. And then in 15 and verses 13 to 21, James argues from Scripture that God is taking from the Gentiles a people for his name, something he revealed that he would do centuries ago. God has made these things known from old through the prophets. God is restoring and rebuilding the tent of David. God's purpose in rebuilding and restoring David's tent is that the remnant of mankind, the Gentiles, may seek the Lord, those who are called by God's name. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, Paul gives a theological explanation for what's actually happening and being decided here in Acts 15. Paul reminds his Gentile readers that all the Gentiles were once separated from Christ. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, we've been brought near by His blood. Christ has made in Himself one new man in place of the two. Gentile believers are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're now fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, a dwelling place for God's Spirit, because all believers are being built together on the single foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ as our cornerstone. All believers, Jews and Gentiles, are members together of God's household. So then, if circumcision and law-keeping is not required for salvation, what then is required for man to be saved? And what do the members of God's household look like? And our text, through Peter's and James' words primarily, give us five answers to that question. 
First of all, God's household are those who are cleansed or circumcised in heart. In verse 9, we looked at this last Sunday, God cleansed their hearts by faith. Secondly, God's household are those who are filled with the Spirit. And you see that in verse 8, God gave them the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that all of us, as we believe and hear the gospel, we're filled with the Spirit. Thirdly, in verse 17, God's household are those who are seeking the Lord. Fourthly, in verses 14 and 17, James describes us as those who are called by God's name. And in verse 9, they're those who are believing the gospel. Now, we looked at the first two last Sunday. We'll look at the other three today. Uh, To give you a little bit of hope, the first point, I'll take almost all my time with that, and the last two points won't take long at all. But don't despair as you're working through the first point thinking he's going to be here for hours and we're never going to get out of here. You will, I promise. So thirdly, God's household are those who are seeking the Lord. Let's read it again. Verses 13 to 18. This is James's words. It says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James's point is in agreement with Peter's that God himself is including the Gentiles in God's household. And praise God that he is, because that's why we're all here. Because God has included us. James reinforces uh, Peter's statements and Paul and Bartimaeus' testimony by quoting Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. And to give you some background, Amos is prophesying in the 760s before Christ of God's coming judgment against the nations of Israel and Judah for their unrepentant sin. He prophesied that although David's dynasty would cease for a time, God would indeed rebuild David's tent or dynasty. And 180 years after Amos's ministry in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came, as you know, and destroyed the city and the temple and carried everybody away to exile. And there were no Davidic kings on the throne of Israel from that time, from Zedekiah's fall and Jerusalem's destruction until we get to this time. And God keeps his promises. God's word has not and cannot fail. Christ came, sent into the world by his heavenly Father. He was born as the King of the Jews in Matthew 2 and verse 2. Christ is titled the Son of David 16 times in the Gospels, mostly in Matthew's Gospel. And in Luke 2 and verse 32, God promised Mary that Jesus would be given David's throne. Christ is the promised, waited for, and expected Messiah and King. He came to minister and to suffer and to die for his people. Christ came to reconcile us through his death to God the Father. Christ came to set us free from God's wrath, from sin, and from hell. And Christ came so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters together of God, our Heavenly Father. Praise God that He did. That's why we're here. And after Christ was raised and ascended, He was seated on His Father's heavenly throne, where He, even now, rules and reigns. 
And although some would disagree with me, I'm convinced that when Christ returns, he'll reign for a thousand years over an earthly kingdom, according to Revelation 20 and verse 4. So God has kept his word to rebuild the tent of David, and God has a purpose in doing it, that the remnant of mankind, which obviously includes the Gentiles, may seek the Lord. So those who are God's household are those who are seeking the Lord. God commands us to seek him. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amos, same prophet, in chapter 5 and verse 4, says, Thus says the Lord, the word from God, Seek me and live. And Zephaniah in chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, and do his just commands. Seek righteousness and seek humility. God makes great promises to those who seek. Why should you seek the Lord? Why should you invest time and effort into seeking the Lord? Well, think about some of the promises God makes in Scripture. God repeatedly promised in Scripture, if you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, he'll be, He will cast you off forever. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 6 talks about us diligently seeking the Lord and knowing that He'll reward us if we do. In Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7, those who seek the Lord will find forgiveness. In Amos 5 and verse 4, those who seek the Lord will find life. In Psalm 24, verses 5 and 6, the Bible tells us that those who seek the Lord will receive blessing and righteousness from the God of our salvation. In Psalm 34 and verse 10, the Bible tells us that those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. So those who seek the Lord will have health and wealth and prosperity, right? You should all be doing this. No. In fact, the likelihood is you won't have health and you, well, you might have health, but you won't have wealth and you probably won't have prosperity. That's not what God is promising. Lacking no good thing means we have Christ. And that is all we need. In Ezra 8 and verse 22, those who seek the Lord Lord, will know God's hand of protection over them. And in 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 10, those who seek the Lord will be rejoicing and be glad. You struggle with joy? You want to have more joy in your Lord, in your life? It's simple. Seek the Lord. Go searching for the living God and you'll know an increase of joy in your life. Why does God's command and promise a blessing, why does God command us and promise those things to those who seek Him? And the answer is that God designed and created us with the capacity for an intimate fellowship and relationship with Himself. But God does not want that relationship to be from a sense of duty on our part. God created me this way, so I got to do it, right? That's not what God... It's, not, it's like when you're a little kid, right? Uh, they're both with the Lord now, so I can tell the story and everybody can laugh. Uh, my aunties, my great aunties used to come and visit when I was a little kid in Melbourne. And when they came, they always expected a kiss on the cheek. And, you know, it just wasn't a pleasant experience, right? It was one of those moments where you, you know they're coming, 
You know they love you. They know they expect a kiss, and it's, it's, it's all supposed to be good and nice and sweet, and you're a little guy, and you're supposed to do that, and you're just something you just don't want to do. But you know you got to do it, and so you do it because you have to. It's a chore. It's a duty. You get through it, and you move on. That's not what God wants from us. When he commands us to seek him, he doesn't want us to go and say, listen, I know I'm supposed to do this, so I guess I have to. No, not remotely. John Piper has a great illustration. I can't help but share it. I've probably told it before, but it's worth repeating. He comes to the door of his home, and he knocks on the front door of his home. And his wife knows. He never knocks. He always just comes in with a key. And she comes to the door, and he's standing there, and he goes, Here you go, sweetheart. And he holds out a a big bouquet of roses. And she goes, Oh, Johnny, wow, they're beautiful. Why did you do it? It's my duty. And she's like, oh, great. That didn't go anywhere. It went badly. She slammed the door and goes away. He tries again, comes back, knocks on the door, and he's here, hands her the roses. And she's, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you do it? Because I delight in you. And she melts, right? That's what God wants from us. When he cries out, seek me and live. He's not saying, seek me out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of, I've got to do this, or I'll, I'll just I'll miss out. He's saying, seek me, and he's calling us, but there is a sense in us, we can't do it because of sin, and because of a hardness of heart, because we're at enmity with God. But God does not want us to sense, seek him out of a sense of duty. God created us for a sweet relationship with himself that flows from a desire for him, a wholehearted seeking of God. God is infinitely more glorified and treasured by us when we seek him from a genuine desire to know him than any sense of duty. In Psalm 14 and verse 2, the psalmist says that God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek after him. And Paul answers the question in Romans 3.11 and says, No one seeks for God. No, not one. Left to ourselves, beloved, we will never seek God on our own because our sinful, hardened, rebellious hearts, and that's why God must first cleanse and circumcise our hearts and fill us with His Spirit so that we can and we will seek for Him. Praise God for the grace of our God, for His coming to us, for His drawing us to Himself by the power of His Spirit so that we will seek for Him. Is there a desire in your heart, brother and sister, to know the Lord? Not just know a little bit about Him. Really know Him. My mind goes back to one of the the first sermons I ever preached uh, many, many years ago. I took Isaiah chapter 1. And there's a, a picture given there. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's crib. But my people do not know me. And the point that Isaiah was making, or that God was making to the people of Isaiah through Isaiah's pen was this. An ox, a dumb ox, known for its strength, not its brains, knows its owner because of the experience of that relationship he has with him. The donkey knows its master's crib. He knows exactly where he's going to find the food and the water and the shelter that he needs. He knows it by experience, but the people of God do not know the Lord. 
And the question for us this morning, if you want to just push the outline aside for a second, this is the one question I want you to ask and think about and answer. Do you have a desire to know God? Not just know lots about Him. Because let me tell you something, when the sickness hits, when death hits your family, when financial collapse happens, when everything goes pear-shaped and sideways and the wheels come off the wagon, it's not how much theology you can formulate, it's whether or not you truly know the Lord. That's where it's going to count. Everything else will go sideways. And when you're left flat on your face before God, it's not that you know theology. It's not that you know all those other bits of information. It's do you know the Lord Himself? You have a desire this morning, beloved, to seek the Lord, to know Him, to really know the Lord. Well, how do we seek and search for God? Seeking God is the result of God, the Holy Spirit's work in us. The Spirit opens our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and gives us a taste of God's goodness. He opens our hearts and our minds to understand something of the infinite goodness of God and grace and mercy toward us. And once God has begun His work in us, there is implanted within each of us a deep desire to seek... (coughs) Excuse me. To seek and search for God to know Him. Brother and sister, again, is there a desire in you to seek the Lord that you might know Him better and deeper and richer than you do now? What does the Bible tell us about seeking for God? How does the Bible help us to do what James states here in Acts 15 and verse 17 as God's purpose in rebuilding the house and tent of David, that we who are called by His name may seek the Lord? We seek with a determination to find and know God. In 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 19, David commands the leaders of the nation of Israel to set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord your God. What does that mean? Make a determined, conscious resolution to seek Him. It may mean giving up other things. In fact, I'll argue it almost certainly will mean giving up other things. As a determination in your heart, I want to know God more than anybody else, more than anything else. We seek the Lord with the determined passion of the gold miner, convinced of the nearness of the record-setting nugget, and he digs and tunnels with an unwavering drive because he has to get that treasure. It's like the man in Matthew 13 and verse 44. He found the priceless treasure, and in his joy... He determines to go and sell all he has to buy that field and have that treasure. He gladly, joyfully pays the price to get that treasure. That's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 63 and verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He spares no effort. He spares no cost, for he must have God. My brother and my sister in Christ, have you made that determination? 
Have you set your heart to seek for God, to know Him, not because we have to, but because we've tasted of the goodness of God and we simply must have God for ourselves? So having set our hearts to seek the Lord, how do we do it? How do we practically seek the Lord? What does that mean? Well, the word in its original language means to search diligently, to make careful, diligent examination, to investigate. So how do we do that? We prayerfully study God's Word. There's simply no other way. But it's not a passive reading. It's a reading and studying like, like the lover who carefully, patiently examines every corner of the love letter he's received, striving to discover more of his beloved in that letter. Texting is a great thing, but it ruins something. No longer do we get little love notes, right? You want to send your wife a message, your husband a message, you just whip out your phone, cute little emojis, you know, the little uh, the V and the three to make a love heart and all that stuff. It's cool. But we've lost something. Because no longer do we open our lunchbox and see that little pink paper love heart with words written in your love, beloved's handwriting. And in that handwriting, you just... Just pick it up and you smell it and you just read it over and over and over and over again. Why? Because you're striving to understand, to know not what the paper is like, not the ink on the paper, but the heart of the one who wrote it. Beloved, it's never about reading God's word to just know God's word. It's about reading God's word to know the God of the word. It's about reading and striving through every word to understand more of who He is. It's reading with a resolve to know and understand God through Christ. It's reading with a pen and paper handy. It's reading actively with questions loaded up. What does this passage and these words tell me about Christ, His character and His works? What does this text tell me about His relationship with the Father or about His relationship with us? What does this passage tell me about how God relates to His beloved, blood-bought people, to unbelievers, to creation? What does this text tell me about God's purposes and God's promises and God's person? We're seeking and we're searching in the pages of Scripture to find and know God through the text. And I can tell you on the basis of experience, when you go there and you begin to labor over a passage and strive to understand the God behind the words on the page, God's Spirit begins to work. And you begin to make discoveries about who God is. And at times it can leave you absolutely breathless and speechless and exhausted. When you see in the words of that page the God who loves the grace of God and the kindness of God, the beauty of God. It's like the psalmist said in Psalm, I think it's 27 and verse 4, that he just wants one thing, to go into the house of the Lord, to sit down and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord for all of his life. We do that in the pages of Scripture. And all the time we're reading and we're studying, we're asking and we're praying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Open my eyes, O God, to see wonderful things in your word, to see you and your glory in your text. Show me more of Christ in this text. Show me more of your love, your grace, and your mercy. Show me my sin, that I might put it off and seek forgiveness and grow to be more like Christ. Show me and teach me more of what it means to be Christ's disciple and your child through this text. Lord, open my eyes as I read 
that I might see and gaze upon your beauty as displayed through these words. Brother and sister in Christ, are you seeking the Lord through his word and through prayer? God has revealed himself. Whoever said God stopped speaking had never opened his eyes. God has revealed himself generally through all of his creation, specifically through every word of scripture, but most intimately through Christ himself. And God's desire is for us to seek him in the person of his son. His command is for for us to seek him and his promise is great blessing for us if we will. Apostle Paul, right? Arguably one of, if not the greatest theological mind a human ever had. At the end of his life, sitting in a prison cell, he could write that he had gladly given up everything as useless rubbish for the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. His one desire at the end of it all, at the end of his life, was that he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Brother and sister, is that our desire? Look, just push every other thought out if you can. Don't be distracted by what's going on around us. Is that our desire? Are we willing to sit there like Paul and say, if anybody wants to boast in the flesh, I've got everything you can imagine. Education, position, power, citizenship, I've got it all. And to me, it's useless. It's worthless. Literally like human refuse, I want nothing to do with it because I want to know Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, I would argue until we're really willing to let go of everything else, we will know something of God. We'll know something of Christ. We'll know what it means maybe to trust Him a little bit. But to really know Christ means giving up everything else. You say, what about my job? i got to work, you know. I know you got to work. We all have to work. But giving up the things that, that... our treasures to us, those little diamonds we like to keep for ourselves, to give it up and to be willing to give up all of it that we might have Christ. That's what God wants for us. He found a treasure, an incalculable, priceless treasure hidden in a field, and he went and sold all that he had, everything that he might buy the field and get the treasure. That's what God is calling us to do. Brother and sister, is that our desire? God effected and accomplished our salvation, not merely so we could escape hell, but that we might seek him and know him. God's household and God's people are those who are seeking for him. And fourthly, the people of God are those who are called by God's name. In Acts 15 and verse 14, Paul, or James says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. He says again in, in verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And in James chapter 2 and verse 7, James speaks again and says, speaks of the honorable name by which you were called. What does that phrase, call by my name, mean? I spent a bit of time this week just trying to figure it out. What does that mean? And Alec Motyer, 
uh, as a commentator on Isaiah and, and one on James as well. In his commentary on James says this, and I'm quoting, this is, There is a personal blessing of high dignity accorded to every believer. We have each been called by that honorable name. Now, the custom marriage, sorry, the common marriage custom whereby a wife takes her husband's surname begins to illustrate what is happening. The taking of the name speaks of an intimate, personal, and permanent relationship. Continues a bit later. Quote, when Amos foresees the gathering of Gentile nations into the kingdom of the expected David, he speaks of all the nations who are called by my name. And Matcher goes on to say, we ought to concentrate on the fact that we belong to Jesus and that by grace he shares his name and nature with us. Close quote. To be called by God's name means that God has brought each of us into a relationship with himself. What kind of relationship do we have with God? Is it some mystical, mystical, ethereal thing? No, listen, it's an intimate relationship with himself. God desires to share himself with us, for us to know him deeply, although never to the same extent that, extent that he knows us. In other words, we'll know God. But he's the incomprehensible God. How does that work? How can we know something that's incomprehensible? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? And what it means is we will know something of all those different attributes, but we will never know everything about any one of God's attributes. You think you know something of the love of God now? You do. You know how much you know of it? It's so small it can't even be imagined. You think you know something of the grace of God? And we do. We know something of the grace of God, don't we? We've been born again. We understand what it means to be forgiven of sin. We know something of the grace of God, but we'll never know all there is to know about the grace of God. But God desires to share himself with us for us to know him deeply. And he reveals himself to each of us personally. That's a blessing. That's a privilege that God has called us to. We're called by his name. Secondly, it's a personal relationship with us with himself. It's one-on-one with each of us. Like Motyer said, it's similar to marriage, where, which is where two people share an exclusive personal relationship with each other. I don't share my wife with anyone. It's a devotion of me to her and her to me. But we're both finite human beings. She can discover all this to know about me in not very long, and I'm still discovering all there is to know about her. Right? We're finite. But God is an infinite being. He's capable of an infinite number of deeply personal relationships with his people. Each and every one of us, beloved, can share that personal relationship with God because we're called by his name. It's a permanent relationship with God himself. Why is human marriage so important to God? The first institution made by God before the fall was what? Marriage, right? Why? Because marriage displays something so incredible about us and God through two humans that can relate like that. And just as human marriage is until death do us part, displaying the permanence for the whole of our lives, 
so also in an infinitely greater sense, our relationship with God is until God's death. But here's the problem. God is life itself. He cannot die. And so the relationship that we're called into the moment we believe is a permanent, eternal relationship. Nothing can break our relationship with God. What a great God. What a great Savior we have. That's why God hates divorce. It destroys not only the marriage partners themselves, but it destroys the picture of the far greater reality of our relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we're called by that name. It's a transforming relationship. Within this relationship with Christ, He shares His name with us so that we're called Christians. We are identified to each other and to the world around us by His, by Christ's name. Just as poor Heather has my last name, people hear her name and associate her not so much with the Chandlers, that's her own family, but with the Atwoods, our family. So also when people meet us and discover the most important thing about us, that we are Christians, they should associate with us everything relating to the name of Christ. God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness, God's character of holiness. You see, when He gave us His name, He didn't just share a name. He shared His nature with us. No, we don't become God. I don't mean that. But He shared that character of who He is with us. But you know, there's more than that. It's a transforming relationship because just as a husband and wife married for many years begin to share common habits and common traits and common reactions and common thinking and perspectives because we become like the object of our greatest love. So also, because we're filled with God's Holy Spirit and because we're walking with the Lord, because we're seeking Him through His Word and prayer, because we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and because we love Him above all other loves, we are being transformed into the image of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us. Beloved, we're called by His name. It's a God-glorifying relationship with God Himself. Isaiah says in 43, verses 6 and 7, I will say to the north, it's God speaking, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah is speaking of God's regathering of his people. Everyone who is called by his name, Jews and Gentiles. And he places in parallel form these two concepts, called by my name and created for my glory. God's ultimate purpose for all He does is the glory of His name. In Scripture, the ideas of name and glory are so closely related. God does what He does for the sake of His name, His glory. So when James says in Acts 15 that all the Gentiles are called, sorry, the Gentiles who are called by my name, He means the relationship we've been talking about, but He also means for the sake of the glory of God's name. Listen, God is glorified in us when He saves us. 
He's glorified in us when He cleanses us from sin. He's glorified in us when He draws us to Himself. And He's glorified us when, when, when we begin to treasure Him above everything else so that, such that we will have to give up all we have to gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which comes by faith in Christ. God is glorified in us when by the power of His Spirit we are transformed in the image and likeness of Christ, sharing both His name and His nature with us. Brother and sister in Christ, do you understand the depth of the riches of the glory of the grace of God that is expressed in those words called by my name? It, it, it hit me. Like I just working on, got up early yesterday morning working on this last little bit, and it just staggered me. The glory of God's grace, that we are called by the name of our God. Oh, beloved, pause and wonder and marvel. God created us for His glory, to know Him, to relate with Him. But all we, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all turned everyone to our own way. We've forsaken God, who is the fountain of living waters, and we've carved out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. We've dug our faces down to the dry dust of this world's filth, trying to be satisfied in that instead of God. But God sent Christ into the world to suffer and die for us, to wash us and to cleanse us with his own blood. He cleansed us. He circumcised our hearts and he dealt with our sin. God filled us with his spirit to make us alive, to draw us to himself, to transform us into Christ's image. And God desires and calls us, you and I, to seek him, to know him. He's called us by his name. I wish I could somehow get inside your minds and just push all that in there as hard as I could. My plea with God this morning is that He would open our hearts and our minds to understand something of the depth of the riches of the glory of God and what He's done. As I read this, even reading back my own notes, it hits me again, the grace of God. Paul, what Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James were standing there and stating to the council was absolutely right. It is God who has done all these things for them and for us. It is God who knows our hearts. It's God who bears witness to us by giving us His Spirit. It's God who makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's God who cleanses our hearts by faith. It's God who's taking from the Gentiles a people for His name. It's God who is saving us by His grace. The audacity of those men to say, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to keep the law. No wonder Paul and Barnabas jumped up and down and shouted and banged on the pulpit and said, no, 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 no. It's God's grace. It's God who's done all these things. Last point. The people of God are those who are believing the gospel. And my last point is so simple. It's not even a whole page. Do you believe it? Luke records in Max 15 and verse 9, their hearts were cleansed by faith. 
He says a little earlier, I think it's in verse 7, that... uh, By my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. The gospel message has been told and retold from this pulpit. You've heard it before. I've I've mentioned it today already. I'm not asking you this morning how well you know it. I'm not asking you this morning if, if you can repeat the gospel. If you can give me the five points or the ten points or whatever it is of the gospel. I'm asking, do we believe it? Because once again, at the end of the day, when it all comes down and we're left on our deathbeds, it's not going to matter a rip how much theology we can formulate, how many books we own, or how much we've read. It's going to come right down to this. Do you believe the gospel? Because you can go to hell with the best collection of theology books. You won't get to take them, by the way. You can go having bought them. You can go to hell having understood the deepest and most profound theology. I listen to guys on, on those you know, public broadcasting networks talking about Jesus, and they got this PhD and that PhD, and you can see from the moment they open their mouth, they don't believe any of it. It's just theory for them. And brother and sister in Christ sitting here this morning, listening to me, drone on. It's possible to go through your whole life walking in and out of a church, singing all the hymns, knowing all the theology there is to know, but not know God. That the Gentiles who are called by my name may seek the Lord. That's what counts. Do you believe it? Do you believe? Do you embrace it as your own? Do you believe God that His Word is true? Do you believe Him that His grace is abundant and sufficient for you? Do you believe that His love is immeasurable and yet still strive to understand it? Do you believe God that His forgiveness is complete, that His call stands to you? Will you believe? Jesus and I think it's Mary walking towards the tomb of Lazarus. And she starts talking about the resurrection. In a sense, he catches her off guard and says, do you believe this? In other words, you understand that there's a resurrection. That's great. Do you believe it? And he drew a distinction between knowing something and believing it. Praise God that we are a part of the family of God. Praise God that he has done the work of circumcising our hearts Praise God that He's done the work of filling us with His Spirit. Praise God that He's done the work of commanding us and calling us to seek Him. Praise God that He's done the work that we might believe. Praise God. Praise God to the highest of heavens that He's called us by His name. What an amazing God we have. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll pray and then we'll go to the Lord's table just to wrap up. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come this morning 
And as we stand here, Father, we gaze up to heaven as it were. And Father, with the eyes of faith, we see standing before us the lion of the tribe of Judah as a lamb having been slain. Father, we praise you and we thank you that he has come. He has come and shed his blood that we might be washed and we might be clean. Father, we give thanks that he has promised the outpouring of his spirit and he's kept his promise. And Father, we have that spirit within us, drawing us to yourself. Father, I plead with you for all of us, myself included, Lord, that we would not be satisfied with a little bit of knowledge of you and about you. But Father, we would seek you with all of our hearts, that we would be willing to recognize that in Christ is the greatest treasure of all, incalculable, vast, infinite. Father, may we be like that man who in his joy went and sold everything he had that he might have that treasure. Father, for each of us, there is something in our lives that is keeping us from seeking you on that level. And so, Father, this morning I ask, I plead with you by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work in every single one of our hearts this morning to expose that to us, that we would put it away, that we would be willing to give up that thing that's so, so dear to us, that we might know Christ a little better, that we might have that treasure. Father, I thank you and I praise you this morning, O God in heaven, that you have called us by your name. Father, we plead with you that we would not break that command that Derek read about to take the name of the Lord in vain. That we would not call ourselves Christian, God's people, God's household in vain. To ascribe ourselves as one who follows and belongs to Christ but does not live as Christ. It does not deny ourselves reach down and pick up our cross and follow the Lord wherever He leads. Father, I plead with you this morning that you would do a great work in all of us. Oh God, don't let us leave this building the way we came in, but let us leave changed dramatically by the power of the Holy Spirit working within. Father, I ask you for your blessing and I ask you these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.